1991, a song was written by a group called For Him, A Man You Would Write About. I remember when I became a Christian, I became a Christian around 1992, and I remember listening to that song, and I thought, man, that is a fantastic song. I want to be a man you'd write about. In other words, the idea was if God was still writing Scripture, would he write a story about me? Would I have shown such faith that others should see the faith that I live and the life that I live and want to be a representation and, and understand that I'm living for Christ in such a manner that God would want to write about me? And I thought about that because the song was really written about one guy in the Old Testament. His name was David. And it really isn't about the fact that David was, was well, without sin. It wasn't that David was blameless and didn't make mistakes. It was that David was written about as being a man after God's own heart. In other words, everything he pursued, everything that he did was for the glory of God. Every step that he took, he was trying to live for the glory of God. And even when he failed, he repented and he got things right and he kept on living for the Lord. Do you want to be a man that would be written about? I also thought about this as we're studying the book of Acts. What about a church God would write about? You know, there's a lot of churches in Scripture that are written about. In fact, we can go to the book of Revelation see there's seven churches that are written there, but let's be honest, five of those churches we wouldn't want to be like. We wouldn't want to be like the church of Ephesus that is said to have lost its first love, correct? We wouldn't want to be like that church that seemed to have forgotten its priorities and what God had called it to do. We also wouldn't want to be like some of the other churches like Sardis, which was called a, a dead church. Now, I praise God, I, I don't think we can be called that, do you? A dead church, a church that is not alive, a church that isn't focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that isn't focused on the things of God, or, or we couldn't be called like the, the church of Laodicea, which was the lukewarm church. And you see these churches, and you think to yourself, that's not the kind of church I'd want to be written about. That's not what we would want said about Hillcrest. Or how about the church of Corinth? If you read First and Second Corinthians, you understand it was a very immature church. It was a church that had a lot of problems. Or you could talk about the church of Galatia, which was really a, a lawful church, but the problem is they became very pharisaical in the way they followed the laws and forgot about grace and mercy and love of God. Or the church of Philippi, uh, which obviously dealt with problems of disunity because Paul had to write about that. It also dealt with issues of not being very joyful. So you think about some of these churches, you think, man, I wouldn't want those things written about the church that I pastor. But what kind of church would I want to be a part of? What kind of church would God write about? And I think about the church we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 2. It's the Jerusalem church. It's a church that really was living for the Lord, that had its priorities straight, that was doing what God had called it to do and was moving forward in vast ways. Now, I'll be honest, we live in a, a day and age of where there are church growth strategies. Now, you may say, well, what are you talking about? Well, there have been many throughout the lifetime. There's been many throughout my lifetime. In the 1970s, there was a thing implemented by Bill Hybels called seeker-sensitive churches. If you don't know what that is, that simply means that they would actually play more modern music. They would kind of change some of the tunes, but then the pastor would get up and preach nice little sermonettes for non-Christians that didn't deal with sin, didn't deal with salvation, didn't deal with anything because he didn't want to offend. He just wanted to grow a church. In fact, Bill Hybels came out around the 2000s and said, well, my church is a mile wide but an inch deep. So he obviously realized it didn't really work and have the impact he expected it to have. 
But that was something that was started. Well, in the 1990s, we had Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Church. And I want you to understand, Rick Warren had some very good principles behind the Purpose Driven Church. There was nothing wrong with those principles. The problem was is the way people implement it. And we also see a lot of times people say, well, you know, we just disagree with Rick Warren. He's really gone off the deep end. And, and yes, he has. He's really fallen off the wagon. But just because he's fallen off the wagon recently doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't always throw out every good principle just because somebody behind it has fallen away as he shouldn't. But we had that back in the 1990s. Then in the 2000s, we had churches deciding that it was time to focus on multi-site churches or what we may now know as satellite churches. It seemed to be the end thing. In other words, let's be honest, it almost seemed like it was a cult leader. Because he couldn't turn churches over to somebody else, so they would video him in to 5, 6, 10, 20, 40 spots all over the state. If you can't trust the preaching of the Word of God to other individuals, you might be following a cult leader. You've got to be careful of those things. Satellite churches, it's not a problem, but they also need to have their own hierarchy and pastors as well that preached the word of God there. But it became very popular. In fact, it, about to the year 2000, they found out that there were 8,000 satellite campuses. Can I just explain? If we ever go to a point where we're using a screen and they have to video me in, just stay home. If you're going to watch it on a screen, just watch it at home in your bathrobe, right? Because that's pretty much what's going on in these places. You need to get into a church where you can fellowship, where you can hear the Word of God preached, where you can actually go talk to the pastor if you have questions about something he said. That's not an issue. You need to be able to do those things and have a pastor that meets with you, talks with you, and is involved in your life and is willing to be involved in it. But that was a church growth strategy. Then we've gotten in the 2000s and 2010s these contemporary ideas where, you know what, we can engage people in worship if we'll just turn down the lights, pump up some smoke, have lights flashing all around, and we do everything. And then, again, we just, we're losing sight we are becoming a consumerism within the church to where we're trying to appeal to the different age groups who are trying to consume church as a part of being the church. We've got issues because we're more concerned about what people are writing in books than what God wrote in his book. Now, you'll find in Acts chapter 2, God's strategy for growing a church. And if we'll follow God's strategy, we'll see what God can do within the church. So today I want us to look at five key components to a growing church. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 42. And we're going to see the first component is teaching. It says in verse 42 at the beginning, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, the idea of continuing steadfastly was they were devoted. I think we've lost this idea of devotion within the church. We've lost this idea of devotion within Christianity. Jesus, when he called them to come follow him, he said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and come follow me. In other words, when you begin to follow Jesus, you aren't trying to turn back to the old man you used to be. You become devoted to him, to follow him, to live for him, to walk like him, to be like him. As Christians, we've cast aside devotion to where all you have to do is pray a prayer and you're going to be just fine. 
Can I tell you, there's a lot of people that have prayed what they call a salvation prayer that will find themselves standing before God and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they weren't devoted. You see, the problem is, is, is we took an old, an old acronym that was used long ago, the ABCs, and I'm so glad they changed it because it used to be admit, believe, and commit. And I don't like the word commit because we've come to a day and age where commitments are broken often. And that's what happens in the church. People break their commitments to God. They walk away from him. In fact, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 says what? They went out from us because they were never of us. They weren't devoted to the things of God. And because of that, they walked away. you got to understand God's desire is for us to be devoted to him. You say, well, brother, does that mean we need to be devoted to a church? I think we should be devoted to a church. I think we should be devoted to a local congregation. I think we should be involved because devotion also includes serving and getting and being a part of that church, connecting with that fellowship, teaching and learning and growing. There's got to be more. You ready for this? There has to be more than just sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. There has to be more. We need God to show up, and we need to understand that we need the apostles' doctrines. I love this because he talks about this, and Paul refers to this several times in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says it this way. He says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But I love in 1 Timothy chapter 4, here's some of the things that Paul says about this in verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Verse 11, these things command and teach. Verse 13, till I come give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 16, take heed to yourselves and to doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing these you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you therefore before God the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead as appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Let me tell you something. You don't need more of man's understanding. You need more of God's word. You need to have the word of God taught. You need to have the doctrine of God preached. We need to be able to study this book, read this book, understand this book, live this book, meditate upon this book, memorize this book, and live it in our daily lives. But guess what? It takes more than just reading it at church. It takes more than blowing the dust off on Sunday. As Christians, we should be devoted to the apostles' doctrine. We ought to be reading the Bible every single day. Every day. The Word of God is influential. It is moving. It is massive. It is important for your daily lives. Now, here's the thing. you got to think about this. What were the apostles' doctrines? What were they teaching? Well, they taught all that they knew. They taught Jesus Christ. They taught his death, burial, and resurrection. They taught the things that Jesus taught. In other words, they stayed on Jesus. Now, some people say, well, Brother John, if if that's true, if we should stay on Jesus, then why do we read the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole Bible, all 66 books, point to Jesus. They point to him before, they point to him when he's here, and they point to him after he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. They all point 
to Jesus Christ. The entire Bible. That's why I love preaching book by book. I love going through the entire Word of God. I had somebody come up to me in my first church. I hadn't been there maybe a year. On Wednesday nights, I was preaching through 1 Samuel, and I was preaching through other books on Sunday morning and Sunday night, but on Wednesday night, I was preaching through 1 Samuel, and this guy comes up to me, and he just says, he says, man, he says, I don't like the way you're preaching. He said, I think the way you're preaching is just really slack. He said, I don't like it. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you know, you just, you pick a book, and you just go through it verse by verse. He said, and you just already know where you're going the next week. I thought, is that a bad thing? He said, that's just real easy. He said, you need to be on your knees. I said, how do you not know I was on my knees when God gave me the book? I said, let me tell you something about going book by book. I have to go through verse by verse, and that means I have to preach verses I don't like. If I preach the entirety of the Bible, that means there's nothing I can skip. I've got to go through the whole book, nothing but the book. That's what we've got to go. The Bible is relevant. Every verse, every part of it, everything. I want to preach it. I don't want to be one of those pastors that picks a few scriptures out of a few different books and preaches it how he wants to, when he wants to, without finding it in its context. I want the Word of God in its entirety. That's what I want, and you should as well. You should as well. If you're not getting that, then you're not getting a full diet. Now, it'd be like this. It'd be like saying to some people, it's okay, guys. It's okay if all you eat are Little Debbie's, right? You can feast on Little Debbie's. That's all you have to eat. You don't have to eat any meat. You don't have to have any dairy. You don't have to have any fruits. You don't have to have any vegetables. You can just focus on snacks. Now, most of us would say if we fed our children a dietary restriction of just Little Debbie's, we would be in a lot of trouble because it would be considered abuse, right? They would not be growing except out. But the truth is, as you are told about that pyramid when you're real young and you understand it's important for them to have protein and meats, it's important for them to have vegetables and fruits and all these different things, dairy and all these other things that are important for a diet. Let me tell you something. You need the law, you need the prophets, you need the gospels, you need the history, you need the book of prophecies, you need the entirety of the word of God. We don't need to dodge it, we don't need to step around it, we need to preach it in its entirety, and we need to dig into God's word. That's what the early church did with the apostles' doctrines. They dug in. They didn't have a format to go from, but we do. We have the 66 books of God's word, and we better read every last page. A growing church is a teaching church, and it teaches the entirety of God's Word. Number two, a growing church is a connecting church. Look at this. It says, they continue steadfastly in apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, let's be honest. This is the aspect that everybody likes about church, the fellowship, right? For us as Baptists, the fellowship means what? Food. You are good Baptist. Good job. It means food. Actually, the word koinonia means communion. It means a partnership and a sharing with one another. The idea of fellowship is that we desire to be together in partnership. We want to spend time with one another. Now, John understood this when he was writing the book of 1 John. Because in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, John says this. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly 
truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We want to have fellowship with the Father. We want to have fellowship with the Son, but we also want to have fellowship with one another. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it says to forsake not the fellowship of the brethren. As the day approaches, we should want to fellowship more. We should want to be here more. We should want to serve God more. We should want to be around other Christians more. That's what the Bible calls us to do. The fellowship. But also, love, he doesn't end there because you think about this. In fellowship, you realize that in the beginning, God created a woman for a man. Right? Why? Because it said it was not good for him to be alone. If you think you can do church alone, you are defeating God's plan for you. You are defeating God's plan of koinonia and fellowship with one another. God's desire is to bring us together. God never intended. Guess what? If the church is only made up of one person, then I would tell you it's not a church. A church needs to have people that have common gifts that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, that work together for the glory of God, that witness to a dying world, that make a difference for God and God alone. We cannot do it on our own. When people tell me they're Christians and they don't go to church, I kind of snicker. You say, well, Brother John, you've said you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, you don't. You just have to go to church to be obedient. And if you're not being obedient and you continue in your disobedience, they went out from us because they were never of us. Brother John, you don't know our situation. We were hurt in a church. Welcome to the club. Trust me, my family would have been out church a long time ago if it went by church hurts. I promise your stories can't compare to ours. The truth of the matter is, is fellowship is important. We need each other. You know what? I didn't walk away from the church and say, you know what? I don't need the church anymore. I don't need that hassle anymore. I don't need those problems anymore. Because I don't judge the church based on a few mean people. You can't base it on a few mean people. You can't tell me the whole church is messed up. Now, here's the truth. We are messed up people, but we're working together. And you know what? It takes grace, and it takes mercy, and it takes love to move together in the function that God desires us to move into. But that's what it takes, and it's got to be willingness on our part to move forward together. We need the fellowship, and I love breaking a bread. And I'll be honest with you. First thing I want to say is, yep, they were Baptists in the early church because they break bread, but... This passage is referring to the Lord's Supper. It was a part of their fellowship. I thought, why is it a part of their fellowship? Because oftentimes they would use the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for church discipline. When people weren't living right, they were gauging things whether they needed to be in fellowship with the church or not. A lot of people say, well, I can't believe they would do that. Well, the truth of the matter is, is guess what? If we're not living in fellowship with the church, why claim to be a part of the church? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. I love what he says here. He says, So the cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The whole purpose of communion is to bring us together, to unite us. To realize that we are all under the blood of Jesus Christ. Guess what? When you go to heaven, you don't get to pick and choose who's there. 
You go because of the grace of God that has been displayed in your life that has changed you. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did on the cross. And you choose to follow him. The breaking of bread is something that should be bringing us together. Should unite the church together. But not only that, it said, and in prayers. Early church knew how to pray. Read Acts chapter 1. We saw twice where they spent time in prayer. Read Acts chapter 4. When they begin to be persecuted, they begin to pray. Jesus tells us in Luke 18, 1, we ought to always be praying. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, we ought to pray without ceasing. Prayer is essential to the belief of a church. If we're not a praying church, we're a dead church. That's why I so love the prayer ministries in the morning before church ever starts. we got a men's group and a women's group that meets to pray. Why? Because without the prayers and without us trusting in God Almighty, nothing will happen here today. That's why I still love on Wednesday night, we still have a prayer meeting. And we focus the first half of that meeting, guess what, on prayer. Why? Because prayer is important. We pray for the needs of those that are physically ill as well as the salvation of those who are lost as well as our missionaries and all kinds of things. Why? Because prayer is essential to the growth of a church. We need to be connecting. We need to be teaching. We also need to be serving. Look at verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And this word fear here comes from the word phobos, which means awe or holy terror. Now, I want you to understand the early church wasn't afraid of their buildings. It wasn't afraid of their people. It wasn't afraid of their programs. The awe and holy terror came upon them because what God was doing, how he was shaking things up in the early church. It was holy fear. Why? Because God was blessing. He was showing that his hand was on them as they were doing signs and wonders. They were having miracles and healings and things like that were happening. Why? Because God was moving in the early church. But he goes on in verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now I want to tell you, here's where a lot of people go wrong with this scripture. And they implement an idea of socialism. Let me tell you something. Socialism is not scriptural. It is not biblical at all. You say, well, the Bible says that they sold everything and they put it into a common pot. That's not what it says. It said they sold things as people had need. As people had need. Now, we call that a benevolence fund. We try to help people in need. But I want you to understand, we try to help people in need who are trying to help themselves, not just help themselves to the money of the church. We want to help people in need. We want to help those who are really trying to help themselves but have fallen on hard times. Because guess what? I guarantee you we all at one point have fallen on hard times and need a little bit of help. I remember a couple in our first church, sweet couple, Scott and Michelle. There's a couple times they fell on hard times and our church took up some money and helped them in the midst of their difficult times. And God brought them through those difficulties. And I remember there was another family that came and had a need, and, and we presented the need to the church, and they were the first ones to us. And they said, the church has helped us out. We couldn't wait to help somebody else out. 
That's what I'm talking about. We couldn't wait to help somebody else out. We couldn't wait to get through that time of difficulty in our lives to help others that were in need. That's the idea. The Bible tells us if we've got a coat that we can help out with, we ought to give it to them. When you read in 1 John chapter 3, he talks about the idea of love there. In 1 John chapter 3, if we have the possibility of helping those and we walk away, woe be unto us. Listen to verse 16 to 18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You say, why? Brother John, you got another situation. That's why I didn't help them. Let me explain something. If God tells you to give, you don't worry about the rest of it. You don't worry about the rest of it, what they do with it. You've done what God told you to do with it. You've done what God has put onto your heart, what you need to do with it. You can sit there and judge every person on a street corner and say, well, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. Who are you to judge? You don't have that right to judge them. What we have is the right is that if God puts it on our heart to help them. But make sure it's God who's leading you in that direction. But in verse 46 says, continuing daily with one accord of the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Man, this church was filled with joy because they helped each other, because they were learning from the word of God, and because they were fellowshipping with each other. But we're not done yet. Number four, they were praising. Look at verse 47, praising God. Praising God. The word praise is used, I don't even know how many times in the Bible, but in the book of Psalms alone, it is used 164 times. 164. If there is a theme in the Bible, praise just might be one of them. But I love some of these verses, and I'm going to read several of them because I just, as I began to read them, they just touched my heart. Psalm 9, 1 and 2. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 18 and verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Psalm 22 and verse 25. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly i will pay my vows before those who fear him psalm chapter 28 and verse 7 the lord is my strength and my shield my heart trusted in him and i am helped therefore my heart greatly rejoices and with my song i will praise him psalm 34 and verse 1 i will bless the lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my mouth psalm 42 and verse 5 why are you cast down on my soul and why are you disquieted within me hoping god for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Psalm 48 and verse 10 says, According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. And how can we forget Psalm 150? Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. 
symbols. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Man, praise should forever be on our lips. In fact, that's one of the things I love getting in my car and cranking up uh, K-Love or Air One and listen to some of the songs we sang this morning and just singing it at the top of my lungs. It's summertime now. I turn off the AC and I roll down the windows and I hope somebody looks at me funny. Why? Because I'm not afraid to praise the Lord and neither should you. God has done so much for us. The church ought to be praising him continually, not just on Sundays when we come here together. We should be praising him every day of the week, glorifying his name in the way that we live, in the way that we worship, in everything that we do. Let me tell you something. The praise in here on Sunday is reflected by what you do Monday through Saturday. Praising God. We were created to praise him. You realize that, right? We were saved to praise him. You realize that, right? I love this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. He's talking about us here. Listen, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if salvation don't give you something to praise God for, something's wrong with you. And I would say you aren't saved if you can't praise him for your salvation. Man, we ought to be so thrilled. You say, well, I got over my salvation. Well, shame on you. I was saved almost 30 years ago. I hadn't got over mine yet, and I don't want to. Because I know the wretch I was. I know the fool I was. I know that guy who was in the past, and I thank God he didn't leave me that way. I thank God he loved me so much that the Holy Spirit began to convict me. And I thank God that I had enough sense and said, I want that. I want that change. I want that life. I want what God has for me. And I gave my life and turned it over to him. I want that. And we ought to praise God. And that's what a church is called, is praising the Lord and finally reaching End of verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. You think about that. The church had favor. Those in the church had favor with all the people. John 13 and verse 35, Jesus said this. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want to know why they have favor? Because people began to see that the church was loving each other. People that weren't a part of their families. People that may have not been a part of their communities. But they were loving on all those who are a part of the church. John 17, 21. That they may all know, may be one as you, Father, in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. They found favor because they saw that there was something different about the church. They saw that there was a love for one another. They saw that God was doing great things in the church, and they wanted to be a part of it. But I love the end of this verse. Listen to this. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. God added to the church. Psalm 127.1 is a reminder to me all the time. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. He said, I and Apollos are nothing. Listen to this. Who then is Apollos? Who is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Can I tell you something? When somebody gets saved, we don't praise man. We praise the one who saved them. I'm just thankful to be a part of it. I'm going to tell you, when you lead somebody to Jesus, it's like getting saved all over again. Man, there's nothing like it. It is a beautiful thing to be a part of something so special in someone's life. When you see that spiritual light click on. When you see them leaving the darkness and entering into the light. When you see them transferring from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. There's nothing like it in the world being a part of something so special. But God added to the church, ready for this, daily. Well, wait a minute. We don't meet daily. How's God going to do that? Because you're the church, and you take the church every day wherever you go. And you're called to share the gospel with your life and with your words. And if you're doing what God has called you to do, you ready for this? He will add to the church daily. God will. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You say, well, I tried it one time. (laughs) Could you imagine if you went out into your yard and dropped one grass seed and hoped for grass? Let me tell you something. When I go out there, I got a whole bag of grass seed, and I'm just pushing away, and it's just spreading everywhere. And you know what? Sometimes I get a lot of grass, and sometimes I get a little bit of grass, but I trust in the one who's got all the grass. And I don't mean weed. He added to the church daily. Those who were being saved. You don't know why? Because you can get saved outside of this building. You can get saved on your front porch. You can get saved at your job. You can get saved at your aunt's house. You can get saved anywhere in this world by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. And we as Christians have got to be sharing the gospel wherever we go. Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 said, go therefore and make disciples. He didn't tell you to sit and make them. He told you to go and make them. Because I want you to understand that the majority of the people that actually get saved that come forward and church are usually saved outside of church when was the last time you brought someone down the aisle that you led to the lord jesus christ and said hey this is my friend they got saved this week i was able to lead them to the lord when was the last time you did that the truth of the matter is every christian in the church ought to be able to do that at some time in their life we ought to be god added to the church daily I don't know if you noticed something as we went through this. You may say, well, I've seen those signs. I've seen them at the front of the church, and I've seen them in the parking lot. Well, hopefully it connects now. Because these are what we believe are important to the church. Teaching. Connecting. Serving. We believe in praising. And we also believe in what? In reaching. It's who we are as a church. That's the, this is the standard we try to follow. This is the church we try to implement and be like. Why? 
because it was the first biblical church. And boy, was it a vitally growing church. But I have to go back to verse 42 and ask you a question. It says they continued steadfastly. They were what? They were all in. I believe today that in the church, not everybody's all in. I wish I could say that everybody that attended Hillcrest was all in. If we were all in, we would be participating in every part of this. If we were all in, I'm telling you, Sunday night would look a lot like Sunday morning. It would. Brother John, I got other things going on on Sunday night. Welcome to my world. I do too, but church is a priority. Digging into God's word is a priority. You may say, well, there was a time I used to. Stop saying you used to and get into. It's time that we start being more committed to the things of God, more committed to serving the Lord. There should never, when he asked for 20 to 25 men to go pick up tables after this, she shouldn't have to wait on 20, 25 men. They should beat her into the Jubilee. We should have such a serving church that whenever there's a need, the need arises and the need is met immediately. Ooh, how can I help? Where can I serve? What can I do? The problem is, is too many of us are enjoying watching the game and we're sitting on the bench and when the coach calls our number, we're doing this. There's got to be somebody else back there he's talking to because it ain't me. God convicted me a long time ago. He needs to be the priority, the ultimate priority of my life. Devoted, committed, surrendered, and living for Him. Today I ask you, how devoted, how committed, how surrendered you are to Jesus. If every last one of us could say those words were true of us, God will transform this community. Are you devoted?